0: Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys. Welcome to church and happy Sunday. I uh, look forward to sharing God's word with you and getting into it together. Um, Welcome. If you're joining us online or out on the patio or up in the family room, it's great to have you for church. You know, one of the worst feelings in life is when someone or something lets you down. I know for me, I hate that feeling. When you expected something out of someone or you thought a situation was going to go a certain way, and as things play out, as you come to rely on that person or that thing, things just turn out all the wrong ways. And it has this this ability to kind of drain life from you when that happens. I can remember a few years ago, I I feel bad because I did this to someone, Um, a few years ago, 15 years ago actually, um, my wife and I were celebrating our 15th. Uh, wedding anniversary coming up at the end of the month now. And so 15 years ago, when we were getting ready to get married, we were pretty, pretty broke. And so I had to take on a third job to kind of make some extra money around Christmas time to try and pay for the upcoming wedding. And just so happened that it fell into my lap that there was an available job as a mobile Santa Claus. And so, um, so yeah, I took the job as a mobile Santa. It actually paid really, really well. It was over $50 an hour, depending on the gig, sometimes even more. And uh, the problem with the job was that it had zero training at all and zero requirements. I was only 23, 24 years old at the time, and they're letting me dress up and be Santa Claus. And, and though I would fill out the suit now, I didn't fill out the suit then. I was this skinny little guy showing up to be Santa Claus at, at these parties and at these events. And... I can remember the first event I had as Santa Claus. Um, The guy gave me the bag with all the gear in it, and he goes, here's the list. You need to just show up and be there and be Santa. And that's it. No training, no nothing. I don't know what to do, so... You know, I put on the gear, go in my car, I'm driving there, and I'm, 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 it must have been a weird scene to look over and see me in my truck next to you, dressed as Santa Claus with a beard on and the hat and the cap and everything, and I was practicing, you know, ho, ho, ho as I drive, and, um, and I, I had to figure it out on the fly, and so I show up at this first house and I thought, oh, great, there's only four people on this list, uh, two parents and, and their two kids, and I thought, this will be great, a small event to, to kind of start out with. And when I knock on the door and I, the, the parents open the door at their house, I look inside and there's, there's like 25 or 30 kids in there, there's chaos, there's like parents with cameras out waiting, and, and I walk in and my, my pants hardly fit me because they're made for a real guy who could fill in the suit, and they're, my pants are falling down, the, the pillow's hanging out on my stomach, I mean, it, it's just embarrassingly bad, and the beard, I couldn't even grow facial hair hardly at the time, the beard is, is taking up my whole face, and you could see the strap behind my head, and, and so I walk in, and I sit down, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is going to be disastrous, but as time goes by, and, and, and you know, at first I got to read the night before Christmas and eat some milk and cookies, and I thought, hey, this is a pretty good gig, right? You get free food and read stories to kids, and, and finally we got to the part where at the end of the party, at the end of their time period, the kids would come up, and they'd sit on my lap and tell me what they want for Christmas, and the parents would take a picture, and, and I thought, Great. So I make it through well over half the kids. I'm getting down to the last few kids, and I remember this one kid, he's probably about five or so, um, he comes and he sits on my lap, and I go, well, what's your name? And he just looks at me and he just starts crying. I go, I don't know, what does a Santa do when a kid's crying on your lap? And I'm like, oh, don't cry, just tell me what you want for Christmas, and he starts crying even louder, and I'm looking around for his parents, going, come on, like, help me out here, I don't know what to do, and then he just starts going... You're not Santa, and he starts crying really loud, and he's going, "You're not Santa, you're not Santa," and all the other kids are kind of perking up and and like listening, and I'm going, "Oh no, this is going south really quick." So I I don't I finally calm him down. I'm like, "Shh, shh, shh you know, like quiet, like <laughs> keep down," and I calm him down, and um, and I go, "Well, just tell me what you want for Christmas." And he looks at me and he and he grabs the beard and pulls me really close. And I'm like, "Ugh," you know. And he goes you're not, and he screams it louder than ever, you're not Santa, and he's screaming really loud, and I go, shh, you know, calm down, calm down, I go, and and this is where it would have helped to have some training as Santa Claus, Um, I, I made a fatal mistake, I go, I looked at him, and I finally get him quiet, and I go, you're right, I'm not Santa, but I will tell Santa what you want, and at that, he just lost it. He, he cried and he's dropping, he goes noodle arms and he's dead on my lap and his parents have to come and grab him and bring him to the back and all the other kids are distraught and looking at me and I've got to just sit up in front of them in this chair and I have no idea what to do. So eventually the dad comes up and he grabs me. He goes, okay, I think that's enough of you. Thank you so much. And as I'm walking out with my bag and, you know, my pants are falling down and my beard's hanging off the wrong way, as I'm walking down, I looked over and I saw him. He's sitting on the chair right by the door and he just looks up at me crying and he shakes his head and he looks back down. And I felt so bad because I let this guy down. I, I know that feeling that he had, right, when, when he had his expectations and he had this idea that Santa was going to be a certain way. Instead, it was a 24-year-old kid trying to make some extra money for his, for his wedding, you know, and, and, and we've all been there in some way, right, where we expected someone or something. We expected a lot more out of it in our lives. We expected a situation to be a little bit better than it was. We expected a person, maybe you met someone, one of your idols or someone you really look up to. And you just find out they're not who they were supposed to be. They're not very reliable. They're not dependable. They aren't the person that that really you thought they were. And and when you come to those situations in life, it kind of highlights today's topic of of faithfulness. Because to be able to be depending or relying on someone or something is is ultimately one of the greatest traits there is. To know that you can kind of put your trust in something, to know that someone's not going to let you down or something's not going to let you down is... Is one of the greatest traits there is, and, and ultimately, when it comes to people, that's where it becomes really important to know that certain people. I mean, if you think about it, think about some of the people you admire or look up to the most, or who have had a great influence in your life. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a parent or a mentor or a teacher or a pastor. But whoever it is, they all almost have this in common: is that you could depend and rely upon those people, that they were trustworthy and faithful. Confucius has an old quote where he says, a man who lacks reliability is utterly useless. And it's so true in life that when we lack reliability, when people can't depend on us, it's one of the worst things there is. You know, uh, t- to depend on someone, to know that someone won't go, give up, to know that someone is, is trustworthy is ultimately what we would call faithfulness, which we're going to study today. Over in Galatians chapter 5, Paul's mentioning the fruits of the Spirit. We've gone through six of them together. And he gets to the seventh one, and he says over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Now, immediately, immediately when you hear that, you kind of think faithfulness, well, that requires, or that, that, that kind of, that means I have faith. And in some sense, that's what the word means, pistis, it means faith. But in another sense, what Paul is saying is, look, I'm not just talking about your faith with God. Yes, it has something to do with this, and that'll tie into what we're talking about today. But there's something more to this. In that list, he's listed off a bunch of things, especially recently. He said, if you remember what we've gone through, he went through kindness, the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. And then he says goodness. And then he lists faithfulness. And then he lists gentleness. And in line with all of these, Faithfulness has everything to do with our relationship to one another, our relationship to other people. And that faith, word for faithful, faithfulness in this list of fruits, it really just re, it, it reflects our steadiness and our trustworthiness in life. And in some ses, sense, it means that now people can depend on us as this fruit is being demonstrated in our lives, and that we're not going to take off or quit or bail when things get hard or difficult. And Paul says, look, we live in a world where everyone has an excuse for not doing something. Everyone has an excuse for not being who they say they are. And when it comes to God, he looks at his people and he says, look, I want you to be faithful. I want you to be dependable. And this morning, to kind of get a greater picture of this, an overall picture of a life that lives in faithfulness, I want to look at the life of a, one of the biggest Old Testament um, you know, heroes of the faith, a guy named Joseph. Joseph, he was a character who had an up and down life, a real difficult life at times. But because of his faithfulness and reliability and his trustworthiness, he ends up saving the messianic line. He ends up running perhaps the largest empire in the world at the time. And so as we look at Joseph, you can flip in your Bibles to Genesis 37. Now I would love to take you verse by verse through the life of Joseph, but man, it is 13 chapters of the Old Testament. He has perhaps, he has the most time dedicated to him of all the patriarchs in the, in the Old Testament. And so um, I'm going to give you kind of an overview of the life of Joseph and his story. And then we're going to kind of draw out some, some understandings about faithfulness along the way. But uh, his story starts in Genesis 37 as far as the story-wise. But it kind of backtracking, J- uh, Joseph was born to his father Jacob, Israel, and his wife Rachel. And Rachel, if you know anything about that story there, Rachel was the wife that Joseph, or Jacob had worked hard for, 14 years of his life. She was kind of like his high school sweetheart. And um, he had worked for her and worked for her and been swindled out of her after seven years and had to work another seven years. And finally, he marries um, Rachel. And Rachel has two children, Joseph and Benjamin. However, when she has uh, Benjamin, um, she dies during childbirth. And so, as kind of things unfold into chapter 37, Joseph is, he's kind of that reminder, the living reminder of of Jacob's love for Rachel, his wife, his high school sweetheart. And so, Joseph takes on the role of of Jacob's favorite child. Early on in the the chapter, in chapter 37, verse 3, it says that Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his brothers. He had in totality 11 brothers. And, and of all of them, Israel loved J- uh, Joseph the most, so much so that we're told he made him a special coat, a special coat, which you've probably heard if, you, if you've seen the musical on Broadway, but um, a, a, a colorful coat of many colors, we're told. It wasn't this flamboyant color, uh, coat that you see on TV, but it was kind of a, an ancient coat that they would wear. It represented the, how, how he was special. It would go down to his knees and it was this kind of white linen coat that would have, you know, colorful arrangements on it or, or trim on it. And, and anytime someone saw Joseph walk by, they would know this is a special kid. He was 17 years old in chapter 37 as the story begins. And anytime he stepped out of the house, this coat signified that he didn't have to do all the things that his brothers did. This coat signified that he was destined for something better than everyone else around. And so when anyone, saw, when anyone around saw Joseph walk up, they were like, oh man, that guy is everything. That guy is, that guy is the favorite of Jacob, our leader. So treat him special. Now if you know anything about a household of boys... It's not a good way to kind of uh, pick one child and hold him up over all the other children. And, and quickly, the brothers kind of turned on him. We're told, as, as a matter of fact, that Joseph, Joseph himself didn't help this out as he went out one day in the field and came back and gave a bad report of his brothers, and so his dad was mad at them. So his brothers begin to kind of have this attitude toward him of disdain. They really looked at him and they were like, man, our dad loves you more. He treats us like garbage compared to you. You get all the special clothing. You don't have to do the things we have to do. And so Joseph quickly kind of, though he lived a privileged life, he went from being um, the, the apple of his father's eye to being kind of the envy of his brothers. And it kind of comes to a head in chapter 37 when we're told that Joseph also has these dreams, he wakes up one day and he goes out and he tells his family about these dreams he had. He had this first dream where there were these bales of grain and, and, and of the 12 bales of grain, 11, which represented his brothers, bowed down to him, his bale of grain. And then he has another dream and he goes and he tells him, look, the sun and the moon and the stars are all bowing down to me in my dream. See, he couldn't really read the room. He tells his brothers this, and we're told in verse 8 that they hated Joseph all the more after hearing his dreams. It's like they were furious. But definitely, as we look at it, as the the early part of his life unfolds, he was privileged. He had a special life. He was marked for something special. He had these dreams. He had a bright future ahead of him. And uh, as we now get into the next chapter of his life, we begin to see his life goes from on high to down low. See, Joseph's life is going to be this roller coaster up and down. And if you haven't heard it before, it is, there's parts of his life you love and there's parts of your, his life that you hate. And this part, as it begins to go on in chapter 37, we're told that he goes out to the field one day to go meet up with his brothers, right? They, they ditch him, of course. They don't want to hang out with him. And he, so he's, he's kind of like this little runt trying to catch up to them. And he finally catches up to his brothers and they see him. And in verse 19 of chapter 37, they say, look, here comes the dreamer right? Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into a pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. So things take a drastic turn with Joseph. Of course, it's, it's kind of a crazy turn where all of a sudden now his brothers want to kill him. They're envious to the point of wanting to take his life. And so they t- toss him into this pit And they're talking about how they're going to kill him when Reuben, the oldest of all the brothers, goes, whoa, 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 hold on. Hold on. He kind of steps in as the mature one, and he goes, look, we can't kill him. This is over the top. You guys are going crazy here. But let's definitely leave him in this pit. It's kind of like, hey, there's da- we definitely need to straighten them out. I can appreciate that as the oldest of four boys. I find it pretty reserved, too. Um, but like, it- it's definitely this rivalry. And so he's like, let's leave them in this pit, and then we'll, you know, we'll-, we'll bring him back home. And Reuben kind of takes off during the story. And the brothers are sitting down, and they're having lunch, we're told. And, and one brother, Judah, looks up, and he sees these slave traders going by, these Ishmaelite slave traders. And he goes, hey, I got an idea, guys. We don't have to kill Joseph, like Reuben said, but we can make some money right now. So they call over the slave traders, they strike a deal, and for 20 pieces of silver, which is the common price of a slave in those days, they sell their brother into slavery. This is crazy, this story is wild. They're, they're literally selling their brother, their father's favorite son. They sell their brother into slavery, he's gone for all their, their, their understanding. He's gone now, never to be seen again. And Reuben comes back and he goes, what have you done? I leave you guys for one minute and you sell our brother into slavery. It's like, oh, and he tears his garment. He's so upset. And they go, don't worry, Reuben. We got it covered, man. We kept his coat. We've got this goat's blood over here. We're going to put this goat's blood on his coat and go show dad. And we're good. He's not dead. He's out of our lives. We've kind of, we, we all win in this situation. So they go back and they tell Jacob and Jacob is just distraught as a dad. This was his favorite child. Clearly he didn't subscribe to our modern ideas of parenting because he clearly loved Joseph over everyone else and he's distraught and he's tearing his clothes and he's upset and he's just so mad and depressed over this and all the while, Joseph's in this, this trading caravan where he's brought down to Egypt. And as he's brought down to Egypt, he's sold into the house of Potiphar as a slave Potiphar was an influential guy. He was important. He was the captain of the guard of the Pharaoh's army. He was an important guy. And we're told that, that Joseph worked in, in his house. And as this kind of unfolds, um, you kind of have to put yourself in Joseph's shoes here. Overnight, you go from being the privileged special child, having the special coat that meant everyone who saw you, you know, respected you and bowed down to you and got out of your way, being the one that had special dreams and knowing that God, is, God has a bright pu- future planned for you, to all of a sudden, out of nowhere, being thrown into a pit, betrayed by your brothers, and sold into slavery. And not just that, he ends up in a foreign country with foreign gods and a foreign language all around him. You can only imagine how he must have felt. And I bring that out because putting yourself in Joseph's shoes, you have to understand that there was a decision that Joseph had to make. When he woke up that morning... And in, in Potiphar's house, he had to decide, am I going to just give up? Am I going to just kind of just look at my story and look at what's happened to me and go, you know what, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. He could argue about it. He could whine about it. He could stop trying. He can just kind of try and get by and just exist and go through the motions. But Joseph had a very real decision to make. As he entered Potiphar's house. Am I going to just react to my life based on what I see going on in front of me? Am I going to react based on what I'm feeling right now in this moment? Am I going to call it quits on who I thought God wanted me to be? Or can I trust that God is with me? Can I trust that God is still working in my life? In, in uh, chapter 39, verse 2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And then on down in verse 4, it says, So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. Right, so as time goes by, you kind of have to read between the lines here, you have to understand this, Joseph made a decision. That I'm going to work. That I'm going to show up. I'm going to make the best of this. And we're told that as he does that, God takes it and God blesses it. God takes his hard work, and God works with it. God takes the little that Joseph had as a slave and makes something of it, right? Obviously, in light of the dreams he had had, this wasn't the destiny, this wasn't the direction he was supposed to go in in life. He was supposed to go in a direction where everyone bows down to him and worships him, like his family, as far as that goes. But now, all of a sudden, he's in a foreign land with foreign gods, and he's got to wake up in the morning and make the best of it, and Joseph goes, you know what, God is with me. He does that and he serves Potiphar and he works hard and he takes all that he's got in front of him there and God works with what Joseph's giving him, right? You don't find yourself finding good favor in Potiphar's eyes and an important man like Potiphar unless you've had a good attitude and you gave your best and you tried, unless you showed up and ultimately proved that you're faithful, trustworthy, dependable, And this is kind of where I see one of the keys to faithfulness. And we'll see this pop up time and time again in Joseph's life. You see, if Joseph had just reacted to his situation in life, to where he was at, he probably would have given up. And when I say react, I kind of just mean he's, he's just making decisions based on how he feels right now in the situation, based on what's in front of him here. And one of the most important aspects of faithfulness is that when we face adversity, we're not going to forget the big picture. And my attitude and my decisions are not going to reflect this moment alone. You see, when we simply react to things that don't go our way, right, we almost always choose to do something or act in a way that's not really faithful to who God has called us to be and what God ultimately wants us to do in life. When I simply react to things, I'm often tempted to just run away. When I react based on how I feel, man, I want to avoid the problem. I want to give up. I want to give in and I want to quit. I want to just get by, right? And you see it kind of happen all the time in different areas of life. You'll see it happen in in relationships where one spouse maybe looks at the other and they're like, man, this isn't what I expected. I had dreamed of something way better and more romantic or this, that, and the other. Or you'll see it happen in your workplace, right? I expected to be in a different place in my career. I expected to have things go better for me. I'm here and I thought it would be there. And now I'm tempted to just kind of give up. To kind of just go through the motions. in these areas of life that are actually supposed to be important to me, that are supposed to reflect the character and who God has called me to be, man, it's not what I wanted, it's not what I expected, so I'm over it. Look, Joseph didn't know how his story was going to end. Joseph didn't know why God had him there at that time. Joseph, he couldn't know. But at the end of the day, he had to wake up and not just react, but I say it's kind of a play on words, I guess, but he responded. Joseph responded in the situation, right? To respond rather than react means that I'm going to take into account more and more of a deliberate choice based on all the things involved here. And one of the things beyond the feeling he had in the moment was that God was still a part of his life, that God was still with him. We're told time and time again that God was with Joseph in these lows of life that he's about to go in through. And Joseph had to wake up in the morning and go, you know what, just because I'm in a different situation than I wanted, just because things are more difficult than I had planned them to be, doesn't mean I need to give up on who God wants me to be and who God said I should be. And so he worked. He worked. And he worked and he worked. Obviously, he felt the pain of the betrayal of his brothers. Obviously, he felt the heartache of of leaving his father. Obviously, he felt the loneliness of not knowing the language and being a part of that culture, but he worked. We're told that because of that work and because God was blessing him, he was made the head of Potiphar's household. Potiphar looked at him and goes, You know what? I can rely on you, I can depend on you. You're faithful. So Joseph woke up and he went to work, and and, and as he does that, his life is now going kind of to this this top again, this this peak up, you know, he's been elevated, and people look at him and they're like, hey, here comes Joseph, he's running the household, he's doing so well, but we're going to see, kind of like Joseph's life, along comes life again, and it knocks him down. You see, Joseph had a problem in chapter 39, it describes his problem, he had a real problem. Guys, few of us in here have to deal with this problem, but Joseph really did. In verse 6, it says, Joseph was a handsome man in form and appearance, right? Joseph was a good-looking guy. He uh, was probably ripped from years of slave labor. <laughs> he was probably, you know, he, he, was a, he was a macho guy. He was, you know, he came from a family of all brothers. He, 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 he's just elevated in this household. And, and, and as a guy who looks so well, Potiphar's wife, Potiphar often wasn't home. Potiphar's wife was sitting around and she's looking and she goes, hmm, I like that Joseph slave. And so she tried and time and time again made advances at Joseph. And, and he was a good-looking guy, and she was trying to get him to sleep with her. And, and time and time again, Joseph turned down her advances. He had integrity, and he said, I'm not going to do this to my lord and to uh, my boss Potiphar. But eventually there came a situation in verse 12 where we read that Joseph was working in the house alone. And she springs out, you know, this this desperate housewife springs out. It says in verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Right? You've got to picture this scene. She just traps him, jumps out, grabs him, lie with me. And he just sprints out. He's left his jacket there. It's like O.J. Simpson fleeing the crime scene. He's left his glove. right, And he's just, he just runs his way. And, and, and as he runs away, it's like Joseph wasn't guilty at all. Joseph was a great guy doing all the right things, being faithful to God. But all of a sudden, with his jacket in her hand, her holding up, her feeling scorned and rejected, she cries out to all the guards and says, "Rape! he tried to, he tried to take me, he tried to sleep with me. And so all the guards rush in, they arrest Joseph, and, and eventually Potiphar comes home. And you kind of got to know in their culture, this is a crime punishable by death. Especially if a slave is trying to sleep with his master's wife. And and interestingly, we find in this situation that Potiphar didn't put him to death. Potiphar just sends him to jail. He sends him to the king's prison, Pharaoh's prison. I think Potiphar kind of knew his wife had a had a bad a bad habit of devouring these slaves. And so Potiphar had to do something. He's upset, and and so he sends him to jail. He doesn't take Joseph's life. God was watching out. He sends him to, to prison. And now all of a sudden though, overnight, Joseph's back in the same situation. It's like, uh, things look so bright and things were going so well. Things were clicking. I could see I had a good future and all of a sudden now it's like overnight, not even am I a, a, a slave, I'm now in jail. I'm lower than a slave. I have no freedoms at all. I have nothing now. And again, it's like his life has gone up and down, and and he finds himself faced with that same choice as before. Look, am I going to give up? Am I going to just go through the motions? Or is there something more to my story? And we're told that God was ultimately with Joseph. We're told that all that he did in that jail there, in that prison, was blessed by God. I don't know what opportunities he had, but we're told that as time went by, Joseph proved himself to be, to be the person that the, the, the captain or the, the one who oversaw the entire prison, the jailer, put everything in charge in that prison to Joseph, and that there was not one single thing that happened in that prison or that jail that Joseph wasn't a part of or overseeing. You see, as time went by, Joseph had to make that choice again. Look, life sucks. This hurts. This is not what I want. But is this the end of my story? Should I be giving up right now? Or does God have something more? And Joseph was willing to trust God. Joseph was willing to give his best and to see what God would do with it. And we're told that time and time again, God showed up and God took what he did and God blessed it. And and so now Joseph, he goes to rise to the top of this, uh, this, this jail system or this prison system where Joseph is overseeing everything inside the prison. It's not a great spot in life, but it's definitely better than being the lower prisoner And and he's now kind of working his way back up. And and as time goes by, we find out that there's uh, the Pharaoh uh, imprisoned two of his servants, the butler and a baker. And the butler and the baker enter into jail. and, And one night, the butler has a dream. And he wakes up and he begins telling Joseph about this dream. And Joseph hears his dream and he goes, hey, crazy thing. Me and dreams, we have a backstory. God's given me interpretation of dreams. Let me explain your dream to you. Let me pray to God and let me explain your dream to you. So he hears the butler's dream and he goes and he he tells the butler, good news, man. Your dream means that in three days, the pharaoh is going to restore you to your position. And you're going to be the wine taster for the pharaoh again. But, Joseph says, please, 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 remember me when you're restored to your position. This is where we see in in this chapter, in chapter 40, that Joseph really does, these, these situations hurt. He's not some robot that just went through life not feeling. He says, Please remember me because I'm here because I was framed and I've been treated unfairly. And Joseph felt it. But Joseph knew he could trust God. And, and so this butler goes on and he eventually gets reinstated. But as the, uh, the butler is telling him his dream and Joseph gives him that good interpretation, the baker hears and the baker's like, Hey, I had a dream too. Cool. Well, you're dealing out good fortunes. Give me my fortune cookie too. Here's my dream. And he tells Joseph his dream, and the baker goes, you know, tells, explains the dream, and Joseph goes, bad news, man. In three days, you're going to be executed. You're going to be killed. You're going to be hung on a tree, and the birds are going to come, and they're going to eat at your, bo- at your body, at your flesh. And the baker's like, thanks, man. Nice to know you. And, and in reality, the dreams kind of play, play out, and, and what Joseph had predicted, or what God had given Joseph interpretation to, had, had, had come to pass. Except the problem was, and Joseph had hoped that the butler would remember him, but He doesn't say anything to the Pharaoh. There go Joseph's hopes and dreams again, right? He's just kind of stuck in prison waiting there. And we're told that some time goes by and the Pharaoh ends up having dreams himself. And the pharaoh had these two dreams that none of his aides or magicians could interpret. And dreams in those days were kind of, um, they, they were very uh, superstitious, I guess you could say. They used them as, as great symbols of what they should do or what was going to happen in the future. And they had these books, especially in Egypt, that they would, they would look for common things that happened in dreams. And they would go to these books and it'd be like, oh, the wind blew. So that means this is going to happen. But as the pharaoh is explaining his dreams to his aides and his magicians, nobody, as they go to their books and they go to their understandings, nobody can figure out what these dreams mean. And you don't dare to tell the pharaoh what the dreams mean, because if they don't pass, come to pass, you don't take a guess at it, because you're going to die if they don't come to pass. And so nobody's got an interpretation of these dreams, except the butler sitting there goes, hey, pharaoh, I remember a few years ago, I was in jail, and this guy told me my dreams. This Hebrew guy, he knows, he knows dreams, and his God knows dreams, so let's call him in. So they call in Joseph. And he's brought, probably wearing his his prisoner's clothes and his chains or whatever he's got there. And he's brought before the Pharaoh. And he's told, Hey, I heard you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says this in verse uh, chapter 41, verse 16: It is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. I love that. He's so faithful to always just say, Look, it's not me, it's God. God's the one who interprets these things, and so Pharaoh goes and tells him his dreams. And Joseph meditates on them and prays about it and comes back to Pharaoh and gives him the interpretation. He goes, listen, in your empire, there's going to, in your kingdom, there's going to be seven years of great abundance followed by seven years of famine. And those seven years of famine are going to eat up the seven years of abundance. And, and, Joseph looks at the pharaoh, and I love this part because he's kind of like, and so let me throw in something. Let me insert something. The pharaoh, needs to, uh, the pharaoh needs to select a really smart guy, wise and discerning. You know, someone who he could set over everything. Someone who will collect taxes during the years of abundance and store up grain so that during the years of famine, the country is, is okay. And the Pharaoh looks around and he's looking at all his courtyard of, of, of fools who can't figure anything out, all these magicians and aides, they've, they've failed him. And then he looks at Joseph and Joseph, he looks at him and he says in chapter 41, he says, "Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. What a twist Joseph's story takes. All of a sudden now, standing there in his prisoner clothes and his chains, Pharaoh looks at him and goes, No, you know what? You know what? God has blessed you. You've been faithful. You've done this. And he probably looks at his, his track record in Potiphar's house and he's like, okay, that's a mulligan because Potiphar's wife, we know, what, we know how she is. But like, you know, you've worked your way up in the jail. We can depend on you there. And he goes, I know that I can depend on you. He goes, you've, you, 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 no one's got as much wisdom and discernment as you. And so he takes him now and he makes him second in all the empire. Perhaps the greatest empire in the world at this time. Joseph, and he says, for all intents pers- and purposes, you're the most important guy out here. You're ruling this. You're running this. And we're depending on your plan. From prison to near royalty, Joseph finds himself as perhaps the most important guy in the world at this time. Right? It reminds me of, uh, I was just watching it the other day, that Forrest Gump movie, right, where he's sitting on the bench in the beginning and he looks over at the girl and he's, he's got his box of chocolates and he says, life is like a box of chocolates, You never know what you're going to get, right? And I feel like Joseph would yell out, amen, if he heard that quote. Because it's like, what in the world? All of a sudden now, I'm a slave, I'm a prisoner, I've been betrayed, and now I'm running an empire. I mean, what a wild story. And all of his his interpretation of those dreams ends up being correct. As uh, there came those good years of seven good years where Joseph stored up the grain and... and, uh, And then it was followed by those seven bad years of famine. And it got bad. The the bad years of famine got so bad that people outside of Egypt were coming down and they were buying grain. And from the north, people were coming down and and lo and behold, Jacob up there with his sons, he goes, look, we need grain. We're starving here. Head on down to Egypt and and I want you to go buy grain. So one day it came to pass that as Joseph is out cruising around, kind of overseeing the operation, he looks in line and he sees these boys, very familiar looking boys, guys now. Very familiar looking guys. And he recognizes instantly, oh man, these are my brothers. And they're down there buying grain and like any good brother would do, he immediately begins to toy with them. (laughs) Now he's in a position of authority and power. He immediately has them seized and arrested and pulls them aside and he's like, he goes, oh gosh, he wants to figure out and get some information out of these guys. So he starts kind of playing the story and he comes to his brothers and he goes, hey, I know you guys are spies. Come to seek out what's going on in Egypt and steal all our grain. And the brothers like, whoa, we're not spies, man. We're just farmers and and, and shepherds. And and our father, Jacob, has sent us down. And Joseph's like, oh my gosh, my dad's still alive. Wow. And and we've come down. We've left our brother, Benjamin, at home because he's our father's favorite, right? And Joseph goes, oh, he took my place, little Benjamin, you know? That's good to hear, right? (laughs) And, And we left our brother, Benjamin, at home. And then they begin to kind of argue amongst themselves in Hebrew, we're told, in their native language, Not knowing that Joseph, an Egyptian, just presuming him to be an Egyptian master, not knowing that Joseph could understand him. And Joseph hears them arguing and they go, man, all this bad luck is happening to us because of what we did to our brother Joseph so long ago. And Joseph hears them talking about this. And them not knowing that he can understand them, Joseph has to go into the other room and he just breaks down and he cries. And you can only imagine that feeling of, of just that feeling being brought back up of something so deep and so buried in your life, something so pivotal in your life, and all of a sudden now being brought back into your life and Joseph's just crying in the other room. He gets it together, fixes his stuff up, comes back in and he goes, look, 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 look. You guys say that you guys are are not spies. I don't believe you. I'm gonna keep one of you here. I'm gonna send the rest of you back. And when you come back and you bring your brother Benjamin, then it'll prove to me that you guys aren't spies. So he keeps Simeon, he puts him in jail, and or whatever he does with him there, and, um, and and the boys go back, and they head over to Jacob, and they tell their father, Jacob, look, hey, we had to leave Simeon back there um, because uh, the, you know the guy in charge of Egypt wants us to bring Benjamin back to prove we're not spies. And Jacob's like, this this must feel great to be Simeon. He goes, oh no no no, you're not bringing Benjamin back. Hey, you're not you're not going. You're not taking him anywhere. I've already lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose my other true you know child from Rachel. No way. Benjamin stays here. I'm like, okay, I guess guess Simeon sits in jail. But, um, you know, time goes by, and they get into the same situation they were in before. They needed more grain. And so eventually, as Reuben comes to his dad, Reuben begs, he's the oldest, and he goes, Look, I will not let anything happen to Benjamin, but you've got to let us take him and go back down to Egypt. And so he heads back down to Egypt. Finally, Jacob relents. And he goes, don't let anything happen to him. They head back down to Egypt. Joseph meets him, sees, has dinner with him, sees that Benjamin was there, and goes, okay, you guys can go on your way. You guys proved it. Here's Simeon. Go on your way. Except Joseph just messes with him one more time, like a good brother would do. Joseph takes, he has one of his servants take one of his silver cups, and he puts, stashes it in Benjamin's gear. And they go off, and they're riding away. And Joseph sends a, a, a guard after them, and the guard searches their stuff, and they find Joseph's silver cup and Benjamin's gear. And all the brothers instantly knew what that meant. Oh, no. Benjamin's dead, man. Benjamin's going to have to be left back here. He's going to be a slave. He's going to be killed. Whatever's going to happen, And so they go before Joseph, and they're just begging him, man, don't do this. And in the midst of them begging Joseph, one brother stands up. Surprisingly, it was Judah. You remember the same Judah who suggested that they sell Joseph to the slave traders? That Judah? Well, he's changed. And he stands up in the middle of this and he says to Joseph, and I love what he says to him in verse chapter 44, verse 33, he says, Please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the young lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? He goes, Man you literally can't take Benjamin. It'll kill my dad. So take me instead. The very same Judah that sold Joseph out is now willing to stand there and say, you know what, don't hurt my dad. He's been through enough. Take me instead. And at hearing that, Joseph's heart, it just warmed. It broke. He sends out all the Egyptian servants, all the the soldiers, everyone, and he calls his brother to himself and he begins to reveal who he really is. And we're told what a reunion that must have been. We're told that they're just crying. They're just, they're falling on each other, kissing each other's necks. And I'm, I'm sure it had to be the, one of the greatest reliefs of these brothers' lives to know that their brother is actually alive. Not just that, but he's like the most important guy in the world now. And we're told as kind of Genesis winds down that Joseph took care of his family, that he reunited with his father Jacob and his whole household. And he brought Jacob and all the sons and all his brothers and all their households and servants and animals and everything out to Egypt. And he said he promised them a a great part of land, portion of land, where they could thrive and they could grow and they could be safe and they could be taken care of. And we kind of, as Genesis winds down in, in chapter 50, we see one last little vignette with the brothers. Because we come to this point where. Where Jacob, um, the father Israel, has blessed his sons and his grandsons, some of his grandsons. And, and he's come to the end of his life. And as he dies, Joseph is faithful to do his final wishes and takes care of his bones and buries him where he asked. But then he comes back and the brothers are kind of sitting there wondering, you know what? Is Joseph just being cool to us, just being nice to us because of what our, our, our dad and how well our dad treated him? Like, we're kind of in a bad spot now. They, they come together and they say, maybe Joseph is going to repay us for all the evil we've done. <laughs> like, he has every right in, 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 in his perspective to take care of us, to, to bail on us, to leave us like we left him. Maybe he's only been nice to us for our father's sake. And so they go to Joseph and they kind of try to butter him up. And they try to go, hey, remember you promised us, Joseph. Remember you said you'd take care of us, Joseph. Remember, you know, and Joseph kind of cuts them off in chapter 50. And in verse 19, he says this. Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them. And he spoke kindly to them. I love that. Joseph says, look, you can trust me. Look, I'm going to be faithful to what I said and what I promised. I'm going to keep my word. I'm not going to bail on you and I'm not going to quit. Look, I know I could, but I'm not. You don't have to worry about me quitting because I figured something out. And this was so important for Joseph. Joseph goes, in the end, I realize that it's God who's brought about these changes and not you. Look, it's God who's done good in my life and your evil hasn't overcome. Look, he's not saying that God brought about the evil things to make the good things happen. God wasn't the author of the evil things. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying God took every evil thing that you intended and God made it good. God took all those twists and turns that I thought were pointless and God made them something special. He took all the bad breaks and he took all those heartaches. He took all the mistakes I've made. And in the end, God had a greater plan. And as we talk about faithfulness, and and I'm just talking about faithfulness, not just in any given situation, but in our lives as a whole. Becoming faithful, dependable people, I I learn a lot from the life of Joseph. And I see that we can't always control what happens to us. We can't always control the situations we get into. Sometimes life is going to let us down. Sometimes the environments and people around us, they're going to let us down too. Sometimes we personally are going to mess things up ourselves, right? But faithfulness starts with this, uh, with looking at what I do have. and And it begins by saying, look, I'm not going to react to the moment I'm in. I'm not giving up or running away because God ultimately has bigger plans for my life. I'm not going to count God short. I'm not going to just react in the moment, but I'm going to respond with the best that I can with what I do have. Because I'm entirely sure that Joseph would have never written this story, right? A privileged kid, kidnapped, framed, imprisoned, forgotten, exalted, reunited. What a wild story Joseph would have had to have come up with. Nobody's ever going to write that story for themselves, right? We would just jump to the very end. Look, me, I'm exalted, right? And in between, there was so much heartache and pain and sorrow. But Joseph became a man of faithfulness through this story. A dependable guy all throughout. Because he took what he had and he made the best of it. He was a guy in the end that Potiphar and his household, the jailer and all the prison, Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt, and ultimately God with the messianic line and Jacob and his whole family could depend on. Joseph had to learn to be faithful. And all at the end of the day that Joseph could control in some parts of life was his attitude and what he had in his hands. He couldn't change everything. And if he had sat there and he had played the victim, if he had quit that day and just said, you know what, I'm going to go through the motions, if he had given up during those hard times and just reacted to how he felt in the moment, then man, he would have never been a guy who had been so dependable and faithful in the end. And just like Joseph's life, I know we've all found this to be true, right? Life is a series of ups and downs. You do really never know what you're going to get. And there's going to be days where you wake up and go, man, this hurts. I don't really want to do this. I didn't picture my work like this. I didn't picture my my friendships like this. I didn't picture the spot I'm in in life to be like this. It's not what I envisioned. But in life, we all have that choice to make. You can make a choice based on what you don't have. It's not a choice based on whether things are fair. It's not based on the way life is going in the moment. The real question is, at the end of the day, it comes down to this: Is God really still with me? Right? For us, us as Christians, that's the most important thing as we wake up and we face the day, Is God really still with me today? Or has he bailed on me? Has he forsaken me? In that moment, we find Joseph, God was never further from God or Joseph God was never far from Joseph, especially when he went through those tragic, deep, trying moments. Those were the times where we're told time and time again, God was with Joseph. I bet he wished that God was with his brothers or someone else at those moments, but God was with Joseph. And and we can know for sure, based on the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for us, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. If you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart and your life, if you've accepted the gospel in your life, then you can know this one thing for sure. God is with you, even in your greatest mistakes. It's the very nature of the gospel and the relationship that we have with God. It's what makes our relationship with him so special is that it's not necessarily based on us. It's based on him and his faithfulness to us. And God will never leave you or forsake you. It's who he is. And you can now take that into every situation that you're facing, to every trial, to every dark day into to every morning and to every problem you're going through. And you can know, first of all, that God is with me. And when you begin to understand that, when you know that God is with me, the real question begins, or the real question to ask yourself begins with what can I do with what I do have today, not what I don't? what can I do with what I have today, not what I don't? Maybe you feel like you're in a pit. Maybe you feel, right, I've got problems. I've got money problems. I've got marriage or family problems. I've got these problems in life, and they're all mounting up against me. I don't know how to overcome them and take them out. The question isn't how do you get out of these problems. The question is what can I do while I'm in these problems? What can I do today that's faithful? What can I do today that's dependable? What can I do today that takes the best with what I do have and makes the best of it? And you're going to find time and time again that when you take that attitude towards life, God is with you. God will bless you in his own way. God will take care of things in the way that God needs to take care of things. Your job is to wake up and to not bail on who God wants you to be. To not quit when things get difficult or hard. That's the core of faithfulness. That's the core with being a faithful person in life. And it relates to every area that we have this this in. Am I going to trust that God is with me with all my gifts and and, and the way that I'm serving my church and the way that I'm serving the Lord? Am I going to trust that God is with me at my job even though it may not be what I want? Am I going to trust me that, that God is with me with my kids and my family and my grandkids or wherever I'm at in life? Maybe you've messed it up and maybe things aren't as perfect as they should be. Maybe along the way you've dropped the ball. But that doesn't mean that today you can't take what you do have and go, you know what? I'm going to give my best. I'm going to make the best of this moment because God is great at turning those things around and making them something more than we ever deserve or could imagine. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. First of all, we can always rely upon your faithfulness. That Jesus, you are so faithful to the Father and you love us so very much that you would give your life for us that every day that as we recognize that, we know that we have a new start. We have forgiveness in our lives. We have a God who's never going to leave us or forsake us. So help us to take that understanding and knowledge and to go into life and to to not give up when things get difficult or hard. To not give in when things aren't going our way. But to trust you, to rely upon you, to know that you're still going to work and to give you our best with what we do have. Lord, we thank you.